We begin this time with a sea captain and a voyage to discover how one of London's darkest problems, the abandonment of newborn babies on the streets, was tackled. His efforts to solve this problem led to something completely surprising, the creation of one of the world's largest collections of everyday fabrics worn by ordinary women and their babies in the 1700s. And even though this is history, and those described here have long since passed from the stage, it's a story that has a capacity to move us profoundly and to raise strong emotions. Something you might like to be aware of, especially if like Pippi Longstocking, Harry Potter, Snow White, James Bond, Huckleberry Finn or Scarlett O'Hara, you too were a foundling, fostered or adopted. Welcome to Haptic and Hugh and season four of Tales of Textiles, called Threads of Survival. My name is Jo Andrews and I'm a hand weaver, interested in what cloth in all its forms tells us about ourselves as human beings. Textiles have an incredible power to talk to us if we can hear them. They comfort and console us create memories and define who we are, and nowhere more than in this episode, in which the secret of your true origins hung on a scrap of cloth. London in the mid-1700s was a successful and rich city, but not all its citizens shared in that wealth. Grinding poverty, sickness and violence stalked many of its inhabitants, especially women and children. And this, above all, is a story of these working-class women and their babies. It's also a tale of how textiles gather meaning as time passes. What begins life as something quite mundane, down the years can acquire layers of significance and be transformed into something powerful and extraordinary. But we start with our sea captain, who returned to London from North America and was appalled. Well, the key to the founding hospitals being established is uh, a man called Thomas Coram, who was a ship's master, a merchant, a shipbuilder, um, English, but he worked in the early 18th century in Massachusetts for many years. And when he came back to London in the 1720s, he was horrified to see children abandoned in the streets. Um, and he was determined to set up an institution to house them. But it took him a long time. It took him the best part of 20 years. That's John Stiles, Emeritus Professor of History and a specialist in the textiles of this period. Thomas Coram was a man on a mission who simply wouldn't take no for an answer. He assembled something many of us might recognise today, a committee of the great and the good, 
or at least their wives, and painstakingly, bit by bit, he raised the private money he needed to build his hospital, London's first orphanage, which opened its doors in 1739. In this, London was way behind other European cities where convents and nuns had long taken in orphans. But Coram convinced artists like Hogarth to exhibit his paintings for the hospital and eminent composers like Handel to create music to raise money for his project. Coram's Foundling Hospital was a grand establishment in what were then open fields on the outskirts of the city. Immediately, it had problems. How to select the limited number of children it could afford to take, how to keep raising money to support them, and how to guarantee anonymity to the mothers so that they could bring their babies to the hospital without being identified. The whole system was anonymous. They were very, very worried that if the mother's name was known, this would be a source of shame because often some, but not all of the children, were illegitimate um, and that abandoning a child was regarded as shameful. So that mothers might, uh, and especially mothers who were rejected, might uh, feel so ashamed that they killed themselves, killed the baby. Very bad consequences would stem. And this, this in fact, was not just the policy in London. It was the policy of all these uh, founding hospitals across continental Europe as well. They all worked on this anonymous system. And so the foundling hospital had to find an anonymous way of registering each baby, but one that allowed them to be certain which child was which. Because the other rule which all these hospitals across various parts of Europe have followed was the idea that if the mother's circumstances changed, she could take the child back. I mean, there's a very, very strong belief in uh, 18th century European culture, Christian European culture, both Protestant and Catholic, that in maternalism, that children should be looked after by their mothers. And so that, in all these hospitals, was a high priority. So you've got an anonymous uh, handing over of the child at the start of the process, but you also have a belief that the mother should be able to reclaim the child if her circumstances change. How can those re be reconciled? How do you know whether the mother who reclaims the child is the mother of the child being reclaimed? And that's where the so-called billet system came in. Well, the billet was essentially a registration document for each child. And although the billet didn't contain the mother's name, it recorded a lot of useful information. It had all sorts of details about the child uh, registered on it. In particular, um, how old it was when brought, its sex, obviously. It's uh, lots of details about the child's clothing when it came into the hospital, because although the hospital reclothed all the babies, as they were brought in. And remember, we're talking very often about tiny, tiny babies, one day, two day, three day old babies. Uh, 
So they had a list of all the baby's clothing uh, that it had worn, um, and then they had any details of any particular features of the, of the child, whether they had uh, a mole here on their face or some other, some other characteristic. So that gave a basic document which identified what the child was like. The Foundling Hospital also encouraged each mother to bring in a token to attach to the billet something only she knew about and she could describe and produce the other half of if she came back to collect her child. It's hard for us to stand in the shoes of these women in the past who faced this choice. Not all of these children were illegitimate by any means. Many of them had two married parents, but parents who just couldn't feed them or afford to keep them. What would you have chosen as your token, as you handed over a child that you couldn't keep? A baby that was probably just a few days old. Most of the women would have been illiterate. To bring a letter would have been difficult. So they often brought what they had to hand, which were the textiles they used every day. Snippets from their dresses, a length of coloured ribbon, a fragment of a bright printed scarf or a little silk cockade or rosette. For a token you needed a textile that was going to be ret retrospectively recognisable, that a mother five years, six years later was going to be able to come back and say, this is my textile. Of course textiles had one other advantage in this respect, which is that you could, unlike a letter, you could cut them in half. So you could take a length of ribbon and cut it in half and you'd leave one half, maybe a foot, you know, six inches of ribbon with the hospital who then pinned it to the billet, to the registration document, and you would take away the other half which you could then keep as your evidence that you had left that child on that date with the hospital. So textiles had an advantage over, over letters and text and paper um, and, and actually, I think, interestingly, very often in the 18th century, that was a very widely held view. Paper, paper is, you know, easily lost, easily burned, easily wetted. You know, 18th century homes weren't exactly weather-fast a lot of the time. So paper is vulnerable in a way textiles were not vulnerable. Uh, textiles will survive a lot of bending, folding, ripping, you know, experiences that paper would, would uh, suffer with. And so I think textiles, to do it with textiles, made a lot of sense uh, for both the hospital and the women uh, concerned. These billets were all collected and carefully kept. And later, in Victorian times, they were bound into books called the billet books. Each page in these volumes represents an extraordinary time in the life of the child and its mother the moment at which they were separated. And the textiles that are still pinned to the pages over 250 years later are all that connect them together. The little pieces of fabric are the last gift each mother gave her child and also a record of the parting between the two. I find the pages emotional reading although we cannot know the circumstances in which each child was given up. Here are some entries. Foundling Hospital, June the 30th, 
1753. Number 1109. A male child, about a fortnight old. And with him, as his token, a tiny handwoven baby's cap in linen fringed with lace. Foundling Hospital, November the 1st, 1758. Female child, christened, with several marks in the face and a handwritten note attached that reads, Elizabeth Brown, born on Sunday 29th of October, between 1 and 2 in the afternoon, 1758. Pray, take great care of this child. And below is pinned a beautiful silk ribbon with a deep plum centre and pink squares down the side. Foundling Hospital, December the 6th, 1759. Number 14695, a male child, about 14 days old, who came with part of a colourful hand-embroidered sampler as his token. And finally there is a baby girl whose token was a cut-out red woolen heart pinned to a small piece of her linen baby cap and a ribbon of blue silk underneath. The typical token that was left with the babies was a piece of textile, if it was not a letter. So the physical token is a, is a piece of textile. And um, three tech types of textile stand out. Uh, first is ribbons, which tended to be um, colourful but cheap. You could buy a length of ribbon, a yard of ribbon, for two pennies, three pennies, and they, they were silk, cheap waste silk very often, but nevertheless silk, and silk dyes well, so they were very brightly colored. The second group was is Czech fabrics, which were very, very uh, widely worn among working women at the time, especially for aprons, for neckcloths, and so on. So as a, as a, they were used for accessorizing in one way or another. Uh, and of course, Czechs were made in, they're mainly blue and white, which was the fashion at the time, um, but they, they came in many different sizes of check, combinations of lines and so on. So presumably these people could recognize them retrospectively. And then the third group is printed fabrics. And these are printed uh, principally either on linen or on uh, linen cotton fabrics. In other words, fabrics with a linen warp and a cotton weft. Um, and these, these were the product of the print works around London, which were using the technology of uh, colourfast printing, which had been introduced from India in the late 17th and early 18th century. So it was a pretty new technology for Britain and Europe that they were using. Looking through the billet books and the tokens, one of the things that astonishes me is that these fabrics come from a time before mechanised spinning and weaving. Every square inch of fabric in the billet books was hand-spun, hand-dyed and hand-woven. Each one would have taken a great deal of time to rest from raw material to finished garment. This was a process that many people were involved in and it gave them an understanding and a knowledge that we have lost. We have evidence of this because for a short time Parliament, worried about a lack of manpower during a new war with France, ordered the Foundling Hospital to take every child that arrived at its gates 
and it underwrote the cost. The result was that briefly thousands of children were admitted. Over four years, they took in 15,000 children. So, you know, the staff were overwhelmed. So what did they do? Well, my guess is that you came into a room, there was a clerk at a, probably at a high desk with a quill pen and an ink, ink well, because, and he wrote out the form. And the baby would be held by the nurse, by the female nurse, who would be calling out the textiles items of which the clothing was made. And you can see these lists and they say, you know, that this is made from linen, this is made from, uh, this is made from cotton. I've got one here which goes, you know, the cap, this is, um, this is from 1759, right in the middle of the war. Um, and it says the cap is made from Holland, which is a kind of linen, um, with a cambric border, right, a very fancy, expensive, fine linen border, uh, a forehead cloth, which is lawn, and another fine linen, uh, the gown is sprigged linen and with red sprigs. A blanket, which was a, a yard of, of blanketing. So-called roller, which was something the baby was rolled up in. She has a calico waistcoat, um, a linen shirt, and a piece of rug, as, as what we in England called a, nap, a nappy, and what in America is called a diaper. And what's clear is these nurses really know their textiles, because I've done an analysis of all the printed fabrics uh, for certain years to look at um, whether the staff of the hospital got the difference between a print on a linen fabric, all linen, and a print on a cotton linen fabric, a mixture of cotton linen. 95% of the time they get it right. <laughs> and, and I can only get it right by using a microscope, but they didn't have a microscope, so they were good. They really knew their textiles. They had a kind of what I've called a material literacy, which we don't really have in the same way now. John says that some of the most moving tokens are those where the mother has customised part of a printed pattern. So what mothers would do sometimes, especially mothers who had a very powerful investment in their children's future, they'd cut out one of these little uh, elements in the design which held some sort of symbolic significance. So you find little bits of fabric with a bud cut out, a bud design cut out, or a butterfly design cut out. Or, or an acorn for growth and flourish. You know, they, these, they're all designed, these are designs which symbolize something for the mother. And that's what they use as a token. Children who were admitted to the Foundling Hospital had their billet written out. They were reclothed, and as soon as that had happened, they were shipped out to the countryside to wet nurses, who were specifically employed by the hospital for that purpose. The other thing that happened was that each child was given a new identity, a new name. But one of the interesting things about the billet books is that in a number of entries, the mothers try to insist that the child keeps its birth name. I mean, and it must have been a risky thing to do for a mother, because if you imagine you're in a terrible situation, you're destitute, you want your child to be taken in, you know the policy of the hospital is to rename the baby. The hospital doesn't want your name. <laughs> and yet, you're so, you do have this bond with the child. And so you get these ribbons and these pieces of textile with embroidery, all with, with these statements like, my name is Andrews. And I think that is, 
that, that to me is very powerful. I mean, we know from modern welfare institutions and from, a, and from the history of welfare institutions that um, the, the people who receive welfare are not powerless. They, they, they get very quickly to know the system. And that's one of the reasons why the people who run these systems often fret so much about malingering and exploitation and dishonesty, you know, often unjustifiably. It does mean that you can't always believe from when you see a piece of textile on one of these registration documents, these billets, that looks like a, a bird flying free or an acorn that will grow, whether it's, is that what the mother really thought? I mean, she's, she's dumping her baby on an institution, you know. Or was it what they thought the hospital would want, that the hospital would, would, would look more favorably on them and their baby if they performed or presented themselves as, you know, deeply concerned with the baby's welfare, that that's what the hospital would expect and that would encourage it to take. So there's, there's always this sense, was the hospital being played? I mean, I think pretty rarely, actually, but that was, that's always a concern if you're looking at these things and trying to interpret them when we know nothing about the actual mother herself or anything, it's, it's hard. But when the mother, you know, gives a ribbon <laughs> with her name on, when she knows that's exactly what the hospital doesn't want, you have this sense, this mother really, you know, has something, has a bond with this baby, that she may be giving it up, but it, you know, it's, that's just still the bond, and that must have been a heart-wrenching decision for the mother. The Foundling Hospital did its best by these children, but in the 1750s, half of all babies in Britain died in their first year of life. On top of that, the babies that came to the Foundling Hospital were from deeply disadvantaged backgrounds. Two-thirds of them died, which is hard for us to comprehend. But there are some bright stories in there. Some of the children, just a handful of the thousands that were handed over, were reclaimed. There's a beautiful patchwork needle case made of many highly coloured woven and printed fabrics. It was the token given in with foundling number 16516, a male, admitted on February the 11th, 1767. He was given the name Benjamin Twirl by the hospital. His mother, Sarah Bender, who had christened him Charles, reclaimed him when he was eight in June 1775. These are tremendously compelling stories, but over the years, both the lives of the mothers and the children have disappeared in the candlelight of history. And what we are left with are the billet books and their fabrics, which give us, nearly 300 years later, a way to peer into the past and to understand a little more about how these women live their lives. We're on a windy street in London in front of an anonymous 1930s building. It doesn't look like much, but it's one of the city's great treasure houses, home to over a thousand years of its history 
stored in 70 miles of archives. This is the London Metropolitan Archives. I lived in London for many years and I had no idea it was there. But it's an incredible place and this is where the billet books now live. They still belong to Coram, which today is no longer an orphanage but a charity working for better chances for children. Caroline de Stefani is the conservation studio manager at the archives and she's responsible for conserving the billet books. They are in various states. Uh, I mean, considering that they are textiles and, you know, as you know, textiles are very light sensitive and, they, and obviously when they have been uh, added to the ladder, they were not clean. And at the time, the quality of the material was probably not the best. It was, I mean, we're not talking about velvet or very expensive uh, textiles. So they already were attached in not in the perfect condition. Unfortunately, uh, obviously because they, it's organic material, they do degrade naturally. And, um, and because they're also bound in volume, some textile, they have been folded uh, several times. They have been pinned with uh, pins and needles on the paper, and that also doesn't really help the, the textile and the paper. So, and the textile, while degrading, has also stained the, the pages which are now discolored and you can see the, the shape they have left on the paper. So overall they are quite um, vulnerable and fragile and this is the reason why usually the billet books are, have restricted access uh, because they're also difficult to handle. Caroline's focus is to ensure that the billet books, the textiles, the tokens and the notes they contain don't deteriorate any further. They are kept in strong rooms where the um, temperature is low and the relative humidity is also relatively low and they are kept in an environment that is stable, which is very important for textile and paper and, and books in general. You sort of delay the natural degradation of organic material. Another way that we make sure that we minimize the damage is providing good packaging. So every single item, every single book has a bespoke box and the boxes are kept in other boxes. They are made of archival grade materials, so it's buffered. Another element is providing document handling to staff and readers so that if they know how to handle the, a particular book or document, so you also minimize the damage because handling, especially uh, items of complicated like the billet books can enhance that if you don't do it properly then you can enhance the damage so by providing also document handling you can limit the damage and then obviously we do intervention let's let's say proper conservation which means if there are tears on the pages if uh, the textile is particularly dirty we do dry clean it at the moment Caroline is preparing three billet books for display at the foundling museum which tells the story of the hospital. So what we have here, we've got three volumes. They have been selected for the next display uh, that will be open in April. And it's an introductory gallery at the Family Museum. So these three billet books, um, they are 
at the, as we see them, they are on book stands uh, because they're very important that they are supported when they are open. And what we see here is random opening of the three books. One has a pink silk ribbon, I think, uh, and it's the silk ribbon is attached to a piece of paper with two red wax seals. And it's the, 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 the ribbon is a little bit crumbled, so we need to work a little bit on making sure that it's secure while it's on display. We see needles, um, because these textile has been attached to the document with a needle. Uh, there are tears along the page, and so we need to sort that out as well before it's going on display. This is a little bit difficult to identify, but there is, so we've got a piece, a paper, an opening page. It's, it's quite soiled, it's very dirty, and it's quite degraded as well, so the pin is rusting. And the degradation products from the textile has, was transferred to the next page, so you see a discoloration on the other side of the page. And this is also a problem that you find quite a lot on these billet books. Um, the tokens and, and the, the textiles, they are coming in various colors, uh, patterns, they are um, printed, embroidered. Um, this one has, it's folded, unfortunately. Is that a leaf printed? Yes, it's That's a beautiful printed leaf with dots in the background. Yeah, so it's very fascinating to see all the patterns. John Stiles became interested in the billet books because he was writing about what ordinary people wore in the 1700s. But it was tough to find information about them. I was uh, working in a museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum at the time, and I, was, and I was surrounded by the clothes that had been worn by very rich people in 18th century England, but none of the clothes worn by poor people survived. Uh, I mean, the only, they do survive, but they survive in the British Library because all the linens were converted into paper. Because <laughs> paper was then all made from linen rags. So there's, you know, so, but that wasn't a help to me. But the billet books were a goldmine for him. The only large collection of clothing samples worn by poor people that survives from that period. It pointed him to a number of interesting things. The first was that most babies in poor families wore garments cut down from women's clothing. There were very few purpose-made baby clothes. The second was more surprising. It was that even very poor women in this era could follow fashion. So it alerted me to the fact that these women were able to have these very fashionable garments or very fashionable fabrics in their cheaper varieties, coarser, less colours. I mean, the cost of a, of a printed cotton or linen turned basically on two things. First of all, how fine the fabric was, its fabric weight, and, and secondly, on how many colours. The price went up for each colour you added. So a, a two-colour was a lot cheaper than a five-colour. Uh, and indeed, in the, in the commercial correspondence, that's how they describe it, a five-colour so-and-so, six-colour so-and-so. Um, so these women, and, and, and as we know that the designs on these fabrics often followed 
the broad trend of fashion in fine silks. I mean, the fine silks worn by duchesses and miladies and you know, the royal court set the fashion. And that was true all over Europe. I mean, and principally at Lyon, but Spitalfields was a near competitor. Those set the fashion, but you could reproduce at least some of the look of those silks um, with print blocks very much more cheaply on cotton and linen. And if you want to know more about silk making in Spitalfields and Lyon, there are Haptic and Hugh podcasts on both. These were, of course, centres of production for the elite. And what we have in the billet books is very much the fabric of the poor. But they tell us that by the mid-1700s, cheap printed cottons were being turned out in large amounts and in patterns that could be quickly updated according to fashion. And they were being produced much closer to home than previously thought. This demonstrated to me that by the 1750s, very poor women could have access to these printed fabrics. But, that, but it also alerted me to the fact that they were not getting that access with imports from India. The calico craze of the 17th century is often said to have transformed what women wore in Europe. Not true. <laughs> what they're doing, what they're wearing are fabrics that use the Indian technique of uh, fast color printing, but it's fast color printing that's done on European fabrics in the area around London by print works in London, which have hijacked the technique. So the key elements of a system of fashion for all women, whatever their status, seems to have come into being much earlier than we thought. There isn't a kind of class split between the clothes that poor people wear and the clothes that rich people wear. Essentially, the look, the basic look of women's clothing is shared, that they all wear you know, some sort of combination of a gown and a petticoat. That's, that's, and that's true of very poor women, and it's true of very rich women. Now, the poor women may strip the gown off and just work in their shift and petticoat when they're washing or whatever, but still, they all virtually all have gowns. And they often have a workaday gown, which is, and that's why by the later 18th century, you get the idea of the so-called stuff gown, the cheap worsted gown is the typical working woman's workwear. But then for the weekends, for Sundays and for holidays, high days and holy days, as they say, these women will have something that's much more fashionable and coloured, and very often it's one of these printed fabrics. The Foundling Hospital collection of tokens actually tells us a lot about women's fashion, and especially about the trickle-down character of poor women's fashionability in the mid-18th century. The billet books have lots of tales to tell us, but at the end of the day, it's the mothers and their babies that draws Caroline de Stefani. It's really moving and, yeah, I, you didn't think that someone would put all this effort to make sure that some children would survive. We have to see the positive. Many children, they were not claimed back, but they, they at least had a future.
some of them. And for John Stiles, the historian, it's the sheer diversity of what the billet books can show us that fascinates him. They have many, many different meanings. They're relevant to many, many different debates and issues. Uh, and that's the joy of them. But on the other hand, one can easily kind of slightly forget their original purpose. Sooner or later, you always come back to this sense, to that, that very uh, visceral, physical realisation that these things represent a child. A child who, you know, given two-thirds of them died very quickly, probably died. And that the child also that was separated from, from its mother. And that there's the, the tragedy of that comes back, even when you've looked at 5,000 of them. Thank you for listening. If you would like to discover more about the modern-day Foundling Museum, where you can see the billet books and find out more about the hospital, or if you would like to see pictures, links to background reading for this episode, or read a transcript of this podcast, you will find all these resources at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen. Haptic and Hugh is an independent production which is supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas and generously fund this podcast via Buy Me A Coffee. If you would like to contribute, you will find the button on our website at www.hapticandhugh.com. Next time, we'll be travelling to Italy to discover if the astonishingly beautiful textiles depicted in the paintings of the Renaissance can still be made, or if they have disappeared just as surely as the Montacutes and Capulets no longer pursue their deadly feud. Join us on the first Thursday of every month for a new episode of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. I'll leave you this time with a short anonymous poem by one of the mothers who left her baby at the Foundling Hospital in 1759. Hard is my lot in deep distress to have no help where most should find. Sure nature meant her sacred laws should men as strong as women bind. Regardless he, unable I, to keep this image of my heart. Tis vile to murder, hard to starve, and death almost to me to part. If fortune should her favours give, that I in better plight might live, I'd try to have my boy again and train him up the best of men.